This is the Daily Signal podcast for Wednesday, February 7th. I'm Virginia Allen. Little was known about gender dysphoria and transgenderism only five years ago. Now this topic is being debated in schools and the halls of Congress. Today, we kick off a three-part series exploring the scientific grounding for questioning the transgender narrative and take a look at the mental health struggles that may truly lie behind many claims of the transgender identity in youth. The series will also explore the movement to hold the medical industry accountable for experimental transgender interventions through medical malpractice lawsuits. The Daily Signal's Tyler O'Neill is leading the way in this series today. Tyler is sitting down with Lior Sapir, a fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Studies have suggested that the number of young people who identify as transgender has exploded in recent years. While activists claim that these people are just discovering a latent truth suppressed by society, some scientists have set out to question what lies behind a phenomenon they term rapid-onset gender dysphoria. Sapir has worked with Dr. Lisa Lippman, who first coined the term rapid-onset gender dysphoria. And Sapir joins the Daily Signal podcast today for part one of our series to break down what exactly is rapid onset gender dysphoria and why activist scientists have failed to disprove it and also discuss why he and Littman have done to advance the theory. Stay tuned for Tyler's conversation with Sapir after this. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And I'm Zach Smith. And we host SCOTUS 101. It's a podcast where you'll get a breakdown of top cases in the highest court in the land. Hear from some of the greatest legal minds. And of course, get a healthy dose of Supreme Court trivia. Want to listen? Find us wherever you get your podcasts or just head to heritage.org slash podcasts. This is Tyler O'Neill, a managing editor at The Daily Signal. I'm honored to be joined by Lior Sapir, who's a fellow at the Manhattan Institute, has been doing really important research on rapid onset gender dysphoria with Lisa Littman. Lior, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And it's Lisa Littman and Michael Biggs. And Michael Biggs. Yes. Thanks for adding. So I want to just jump right in. Rapid onset gender dysphoria, what is it and why does the medical establishment seem so dedicated to denying that it exists? Yeah, great question. So in 2018, um, Lisa Littman, who was then at Brown University, proposed a hypothesis based on her own uh, observation in her own uh, observations in her own um, uh, sphere of life about, you know, uh, parents who started to say, you know, my kid out of the blue came out as trans and they were clearly suffering from other mental health problems. And so Lisa said, you know, something is going on here. And she and she um, decided to do a survey of um, of these parents. And what she found was that um, there was actually a high prevalence of comorbid mental health problems, um, history of trauma and abuse, and all these these kinds of uh, co-occurring phenomena that that could be associated with with trans identity as a maladaptive coping mechanism. There were uh, there were reports from a lot of the parents of social influence, peer influence, periods of prolonged exposure to social media right before, you know, kind of the disclosure of a trans identity. And so she wrote this paper to propose a new hypothesis for further study, as a good scientist would, right? She did not claim that this is settled science. She said, we seem to be observing a new pathway 
to gender dysphoria. Because until that point, the two known pathways, the two pathways that were the two, uh, I should say, subtypes of gender dysphoria that were recognized in the clinical liter- literature were adult gender dysphoria and childhood gender dysphoria, which starts at a very, very early age. So she said, you know, there must be something, there could be, I shouldn't say must, there could be something else going on here, a new subtype that, that we haven't recognized yet. Her paper was immediately uh, attacked viciously um, by, by activists. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and they, didn't li- they did not like the idea that trans identity can be anything except for an innate, immutable, authentic, you know, ne- uh, never to be questioned um, self- form of self-identification. And so they put a lot of pressure on Plus One, the, the journal that published her paper, to retract it. Um, it wasn't retracted. They did ask uh, Littman to uh, issue a clarification stating that, no, this is not an official recognized mental health diagnosis. It's a hypothesis about a pathway to gender dysphoria that requires further study and could one day become an official diagnosis, but it isn't. That's really all that happened in that whole episode. Um, Among other critiques, I think the critique that has become the most uh, prevalent um, against ROGD is that what appears to parents as a sudden onset of trans identity or of gender dysphoria is really a late disclosure by the adolescent of a trans identity that was felt, intuited, developed much earlier in life, often in early childhood, but which the adolescent had kept secret um, from the parents and from other people in his or her life. And so um, there have been a number of papers making this argument, and the most recent of them was published this last summer in the Journal of Adolescent Health by um, Jack Turbin, a psychiatrist at um, University of San Francisco, California, and um, and, and co-authors, and his co-authors. And uh, it's a very short paper, but what they argue in that paper is precisely this, uh, this point, that, um, that what appears to be a sudden onset and disclosure of trans identity is really a much delayed disclosure of a previously realized one. And um, the, the, they use a, a data, uh, the data set that they use to make this argument is a survey from 2015 called the U.S. Transgender Survey of t- 2015. It's the largest survey of adults to date, although they're, they're trying to renew it now. Last year, they, they did another a re, a renewed survey. It um, hasn't really been published yet. But this was the largest survey of transgender adults. The sample that Turbin um, relies on is about 27,000 people. And they claim to find in the sample evidence of their hypothesis of late disclosure. And so when the article first came out, you know, knowing that Turbin is one of the most dishonest figures in the world of gender medicine research, I, I looked at the paper and I said, you know, there's just so many red flags here. There are things that just don't make sense. Uh, just to give one example, Turbin relies on adult recollection of, of when they realized they were trans. Oh, and my. some of the respondents, I'm talking hundreds of respondents, I don't remember the exact number, but it's over 400 respondents, I think, um, said that they realized they were transgender by age two. And that includes, yeah, that, that, is the, that is the reaction that that deserves, right? And do they remember the color of uh, their diaper when they were aged? <laughs> exactly. They remember nothing else, but somehow they remember that they're trans. And, and this included, uh, I think it was 260-something respondents who said that they knew they were transgender in their first year of life. And, you know, the fact that Turbin and his co-authors just take all of this stuff at face value is a, uh, was a big red flag. And I saw a lot of other um, irregularities in their, in their analysis, 
So I said, you know, uh, something is wrong here. Let's take a deeper look. I don't think, and I'll get to this in a second, I don't think the U.S. Transgender Survey of 2015 is a good data source for a number of reasons, but let's assume that it is. Let's take a look at this data source with a more scientific uh, lens and see if it really supports Turbin's uh, um, uh, hypothesis or maybe the ROGD hypothesis. And so I got in touch with Lisa Littman and Michael Biggs and asked them, are you willing to, do you want to write this paper with me? And they said, sure. And so we, we took a look at it. And sure enough, you know, we found overwhelming, you know, smoking gun evidence of ROGD. But as we point out in our letter to the editor, the sample is actually it's more confirming of the ROGD hypothesis than undermining of it. And, and I, I can explain in a minute why that is. And so we published this in a, a pretty long letter to the editor in the Archives of Sexual Behavior, laying out the data, our analysis of what Turbin and his co-authors uh, omitted, all of the manipulations that they did. And, um, and in response to this, of course, uh, Turbin has never responded. The Journal of Adolescent Health immediately blocked me on Twitter. That was their reaction. They blocked me on Twitter. This is a medical, a professional medical journal. Well, but um, they ran your letter to the editor, right? Or no, no. They? This was, so our letter to the editor appeared in a different medical journal. Um, the Archives of sexual behavior. Yeah, these are both peer-reviewed medical journals. Turbin's paper was peer-reviewed. Our letter to the editor was peer-reviewed. So both of them went through that process. But it just struck me as totally unprofessional. You know? And, you know, we got a little bit of criticism from uh, transgender activists online. Most of it was, was junk criticism. But some of it actually raised some good points. And we responded to those points in a follow-up piece that we published in a substack, Colin Wright's substack, Reality's Last Stand. So there's kind of a, you can call it an exchange. Unfortunately, it wasn't a good faith exchange with the other side, but that's you know, par for the course. We've come to expect that. So I can get into some of the, you know, the details of the findings and, and, and why they're relevant for this, uh, for this debate. Yeah. So, so first of all, let's just talk about the sample itself. So the sample, as I said, it was a survey from 2015 of adults. Now, if you know anything about the trajectory of ROGD, the hypothesis is that um, this phenomenon really started to emerge in the late 2000s and picked up speed in the 2010s. And actually, we know from uh, the sample, a survey of adults from 2015 cannot possibly pick up on ROGD phenomena if that's what Turbin and his colleagues are trying to investigate. So the sample from the get-go is just uh, it's too outdated. So that's the first, uh, first thing that we point out. The second thing that we point out with regard to the uh, sample and its, its, its bias is that in order to participate in the U.S. Transgender Survey of 2015, you had to currently identify as transgender, which means that... So anyone who stopped identifying as transgender was excluded. Exactly, right? So if let's say you have an adolescent who identified as trans as a maladaptive coping mechanism out of social influence, whatever, and then by age 18, 19, 20, they, they stopped identifying that way. By definition, they couldn't participate in the survey. So, And you have no control group, so you don't even know like right. people who never identified as transgender and had potentially been exposed to these things. Exactly right. Right. I mean, this, so this is a, a survey. A survey can never give you evidence of causation of anything. Um, uh, and so, you know, it, it, it's a very, very low quality in, in, in evidence-based medicine surveys are considered an extremely low-quality source of information. In fact, the European Systematic Evidence Reviews exclude studies that rely on surveys precisely because there's just no way you can find any form of, of causal evidence of anything from them. So in any case, uh, I, what, what I found interesting is that in Turbin's previous paper um, that he wrote also trying to debunk ROGD, he actually he and his colleagues openly admitted 
that the U.S. transgender survey of 2015 has this limitation in it, that because it only samples adults who currently identify as trans, it can tell us nothing about those who once did but no longer do. And yet here in his new paper, he just omits that limitation because obviously it would greatly undermine his argument. So again, another one of these red flags. So that's, that's with regard to the sample. Uh, there are other problems and, and, source, and, and reasons to, to see the sample as biased, but, but I'll leave that to the side for now. A second major problem with the survey, and this is kind of where we can get into what we found versus what, what they found, is the way in which they conceptualize time to disclosure of trans identity. Okay, So um, th- the U.S. transgender survey had three questions that are relevant here. Um, the first was, at what age did you start to feel like th- that your gender was different from your s- sex assigned at birth? Something like that. Second question was, at what age did you begin to feel that you were trans, even if you didn't have a word to articulate it? And the third question is, at what age did you disclose a trans identity to a family member or somebody else in your life? Okay, so these are the three questions. Now, if the question is, at what age did you realize that you were trans, you would think, naturally, you would go to question number two, because it asks explicitly, at what age did you first start to think that you were trans, even if you didn't have a word to conceptualize it? But what Turbin did is he chose question number one as the proxy for when people realized they were trans. Uh, meaning he chose the question, at what age did you start to feel that your gender is different from your sex? Now, there's a number of reasons why that could be highly misleading. Uh, It's obviously subject to what's known as recall bias. So just to give you a scenario here, let's say you have um, an autistic teenager, um, and this autistic teenager doesn't fit in um, socially, uh, really struggles. Um, A year later, two years later, um, they come across transgender content online, and there's social influence, all these kinds of things, and they come to adopt a trans identity, and they disclose it. And then let's say three years after that, they participate in the U.S. transgender survey and they're asked to recollect kind of uh, the trajectory of their identity development. Um, it could very well be that this adolescent, this now young adult, will look back and say, okay, during these first two years, I felt different. I didn't know what, why I felt different, but I felt different. And it could be that now, as an adult, the, this respondent will look back and say, oh, it was because I was trans. I just didn't realize it yet. It took me another two years. Whereas if you kind of go back in time to what was actually going on in this person's head for those two years, they, had, they hadn't even heard of trans or gender. Their, their struggles had nothing to do with gender. So this is known as the problem of recall bias. Um, well, because when you adopt an identity in the present, you can often think back and right. read that identity into your life and into instances of your life, experiences you had that otherwise, you know, if you had never made the decision later, you would never re, you know, you'd never have this. Correct. That's exactly right. Um, now, you know, this is a lot of speculation, right? It could be that somebody uh, for two years thought about gender being different from sex, whatever that means. It could be, right? We're not saying that's impossible. We're just saying uh, using the question number one is subject to a lot more recall bias than using question number two, which asks explicitly about developing a trans identity. So why wouldn't Turbin use question number two? Well, we dug down <laughs> into, the, into the data, we did some analysis, and it turns out if he had used question number two, the, the median time from realization to disclosure would have been one year. And a, a one-year time of realization to disclosure supports the ROGD hypothesis. Um, as it is, they actually did 
didn't even disclose the, the median time from realization to disclosure for those who uh, uh, given question number one um, because they didn't even look at the adolescent group in isolation. They looked only at those who said we, wow. we first realized uh, of this about, our, about ourselves when we were children before age 10. It gets very, very messy. They did a lot of gymnastics there in order to, to produce their conclusion, which, it, uh, which was that there's a median of 14 years between realization to disclosure. But it turns out that even if we grant Turbin his assumption that question number one, when you start to feel your gender is different, um, is a reliable proxy for realization, if they had looked only at the age-relevant group, which was 18 to 24-year-olds, respondents to the U.S. Transgender Survey, right? Only the young adults who would have been young enough to be within the ROGD-relevant time frame, even if they had, uh, even if we accept that assumption, if we look at this particular group, um, we actually found, and we didn't discuss this in our letter to the editor, we discussed it later on in our um, in our uh, Substack reply to critics, it turns out that um, over 2,000 respondents said that they, um, they uh, realized that their gender was different from their sex and then disclosed a transgender identity within one year or less. Uh, so this includes people who uh, would have realized it and disclosed it within months or, or even weeks. Um, in other words, people who chose zero, right, or, or uh, who were conceptualized as zero between time to, um, from realization to disclosure. So in any case, um, you know, there were other uh, indicators of ROGD, uh, uh, ROG, or I should say symptoms consistent with ROGD. For example, there was a, a, a strong female skew of the sample. Um, if we looked only at the age-relevant cohort, it was 75%, if I remember correctly, it was 75% female. Turbin and his colleagues did not look only at the ROGD, they 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 bunched in the 18 to 24 olds with all the other older adults who are irrelevant to ROGD, and then they found that it was still female-skewed, although only 60%. Um, we also found, look, looking at the uh, survey, we found that among this ROGD-relevant group of 18 to 24-year-olds, um, there was an extremely high prevalence of mental health problems. 56% of the respondents said they had struggles with severe distress, severe, severe mental health problems, versus um, uh, 36% or lower of older generations. And so that's very interesting because one of the hypotheses connected to ROGD is that trans identity is adopted as a maladaptive coping mechanism for underlying mental health problems. So, you know, these were, again, these were not, this is not smoking gun, settled science evidence of ROGD. We never claimed that. Um, rather, these were uh, indications of symptoms consistent with ROGD in a sample that we already believe is highly biased against ROGD. And the fact that Turbin and his co-authors never disclosed this, never discussed this, never expressed any curiosity with it, um, really shows that they were not coming at this from the perspective of scientists who are kind of, you know, interested in the truth about these issues, but that are just trying to manipulate data to produce a, a, a political conclusion. Well, so what's the next step forward? We talk about, you know, ROGD is a hypothesis, um, but if we were to reach a stage in which someone could be diagnosed with it, uh, what hurdles would it have to cross? And then, you know, is it at what point, if, if we've passed the peak, I mean, how... Do you expect it to continue to be relevant for a long period of time? Sure. So just to be clear, I, I just want to clarify. <laughs> I, I'm not saying I know that we've passed the peak. Um, there is limited evidence that we may, we might have. Um, okay. but, but we don't know that for sure. And, you know, these things ebb and flow, right? We could see a kind of tapering off of trans identification among youth. 
um, let's say in the year or two after COVID, it could even drop a little bit and then it could skyrocket again. We, you know, these things really, are, um, precisely because it's a, it's a primarily a culturally dri- driven trend, there, there's going to be fluctuation is my prediction here. But, but to get to your question, um, so look, there, many mental health conditions start off as a hypothesis um, based on the kind of, you know, untutored scientific observations of, um, of clinicians working in the field. They, they see a certain phenomena coming, coming into their office over and over and over again. They say, hey, there's a certain pattern here. I'm going to propose a hypothesis. Then let's study it, hopefully in an empirically rigorous way. Um, and then once, once the mental health phenomenon is, is, uh, is, is widely observed, once it, you know, it's reliably identified, um, it can make its way into the DSM, to the uh, Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders. Um, but it could take years. So, for example, binge eating disorder. Symptoms of binge eating disorder were, were described in the DSM-4, which came out in 1994. But it wasn't until the DSM-5, which came out in 2013, that it was officially recognized as a mental health condition. So it could take years for, for a phenomenon to, to be officially recognized. Um, and you know, with ROGD, because it's so politically controversial, it could even take much longer than that. Um, and, and it could even never be recognized. Because if activists, you know, uh, capture the APA, which they absolutely have, um, they'll 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 th- th- that's a hill they're definitely going to die on to make sure that it's not recognized. So that's one of the barriers. But look, I mean, if you if you look and we met, we go over this a little bit in our letter to the editor. ROGD is associated with a particular clinical presentation. So adolescents who do not have a, hi- a childhood history of gender nonconformity or gender distress or or issues with their sex, right, that in, in, in real language. Um, they don't have issues with being ma- uh, boys or girls, um, and these problems seem to develop only in adolescence. Um, they have co-occurring mental health problems, anxiety, depression, autism, OCD, eating disorders, history of trauma, you name it. Um, and they are predominantly, although not exclusively, but predominantly female, right? Um, and they belong to peer groups where, um, where some of the kids come out in trans as trans in clusters. So there's all these kind of indicators of, of symptoms. Um, and, and what we have seen in the medical literature in the last few years um, is, uh, is, is confirmation of these presentations. So there's plenty of evidence now showing that um, uh, among adolescents who are clinically referred, referred to gender clinics and diagnosed with gender dysphoria, yeah. something like 70% or more of them um, will have co-occurring mental health problems that were diagnosed before the onset of their gender dysphoria. Wow. And that gives you an indication, again, there's no smoking gun proof here, it gives you an indication of the causal relationship between a trans identity and other mental health problems. Namely, that the trans identity could very well be a maladaptive coping mechanism for or, for example, an autistic kid who doesn't fit in and is using trans identity as a frame in which to explain his or her social awkwardness. Um, so anyway, yeah, so, so that, yeah. that's the, the long answer to your very good so, question. So we're dealing with a situation that I'd say the, the medical community is bifurcated. You have a lot of organizations that have been taken over by this ideology that says the only possible answer is quote unquote gender affirming care. Mm-hmm. And then you have the critics who are often, you know, demonized, ostracized, but also quite sizable, who are saying 
know this is damaging to kids. The real problem is we don't have a good way of scientifically determining where the full truth is. And I mean, naturally, I think you and I would fall in into the skeptical camp, but it would be interesting for the pursuit of science to actually have the ability to have a control group and people who are not being biased from the beginning saying like, this is the only path or this is evil. Like, but is there any chance that we're going to get a study that will actually give us these answers? That's a great question. I mean, are we going to get a study that will definitively definitively um, resolve the ROG debate? I highly doubt it. Um, uh, even if we have a very reliable study, you know, the other side is just not going to accept it. But look, I mean, here's what I would say. First of all, just one additional piece of evidence that I didn't mention that I think needs to be uh, mentioned mm-hmm. Um in 2021, Lisa Littman uh, published a study on 100 detransitioners um, and kind of documenting, you know, their experiences and what caused them to want to transition and to want to detransition. And one of the interesting findings there is that um, pretty robust part of the sample said um, social influence, online exposure to trans culture was a major catalyst of our of, of my, you know, kind of uh, conceptualizing my ongoing problems as related to gender and therefore my desire to uh, identify as trans and want to transition. So, um, and what's interesting is that, you know, uh, Turbin um, uh, says we can never, we should never rely on the reports of parents because they're just biased. Uh, we should always rely on the self-reports of people who, um, who have gender identity journeys. Um, well, here, Lisa Littman actually consulted people who had gender identity uh, 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 journeys, and they themselves said social influence was a major factor in our decision to transition. Um, so, you know, so even but by... But they're heretics. Yes. Okay, sure. Sure. <laughs> of course, right? But, but even by their own methodology, there is evidence confirming social influence as a factor related to a trans identity. But look, I mean, to answer your question, no, I don't think we're ever going to have um, high-quality, reliable research on these things. Um, I just think that's, that, that's inevitable. But we are going to have piecemeal evidence that comes out as a trickle um, uh, confirming aspects of the ROGD hypothesis, you know, kind of the timeline of, for example, development of a transgender identity relative to other mental health struggles, uh, you know, the, the kind of the, the trajectory of exposure to social influence in peer groups as a risk factor, let's call it, for the development of gender dysphoria um, yeah. and things like that. So that's probably what we're going to have. But I, I do want to emphasize one really, really important point. And I, 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 I try to mention this in every interview that I give. I try. Um, the, because, because what's riding on this debate is the legitimacy of a medical intervention that can cause severe, irreversible, lifelong harm and suffering. The burden of proof here is on those arguing that anybody who says I'm trans is eligible for medical intervention. They face the burden of proof, not us. And so that's really important because, you know, it's very easy to, uh, for the other side to say, well, you know, you have to prove that ROGD exists. Yes, to some extent, they're right. If we propose the hypothesis, we you shoulder the... Demonstrate it. Exactly. Right. But the burden of proof for an intervention... Exactly. ...that will leave someone, you know, permanently changed for the rest of their life, especially in children, like, 
Exactly. Clearly exactly. rests with the advocates. Exactly. Right. So if you take a step back from the ROG debate and you put it in the broader context of the debate about gender medicine, which is the only reason why the ROGD issue is so controversial, right? That's the only reason why it's getting so much attention is because there's the medicalization attached to it. Then I think it's really important to say, no, no, those proposing that, you know, in quotation marks, trans kids know who they are and should be eligible for these interventions because they identify as trans. They're the ones who have the burden of proof. So it's really important to kind of set the, the presumptions of who has to prove what here. Yeah. And amid the ideological capture of America's medical institutions, we've seen these alternate medical institutions propping up. You know, for the American Academy of Pediatrics, you have the American College of Pediatricians. For uh, some, I don't know if there is an APA equivalent, uh, but, you know, if there were to be an alternate organization that would publish its own diagnostic and statistical menu because i mean as as we've noted the the field is so bifurcated right now it's hard to imagine rogd being added to the dsm-6 but if there was an alternate you know do you think there is a chance for an alternate organization to i believe it's the apa that puts out the dsm yeah um if there was an alternate APA that put out its own DSM um, and could include this, would you see treatment regimens like responses? What would that path look like? Yeah. Uh, look, it's a good question. I mean, uh, you know, the diagnosis of gender dysphoria is, let's just put it this way, bad enough as it is. Um, even without the ROGD issue, right? Even if even if the um, ROGD, you know, were not added, the existence of gender dysphoria in the DSM is a problem because the gender dysphoria diagnosis, as per, you know, the fifth edition of the DSM, is explicitly non-pathologizing, meaning it conceptualizes incongruence between a person's felt gender, so to speak, and their actual sex as just a normal variation of human development. And so the focus, the the, the diagnostic focus is on the distress that accompanies gender incongruence and the difficulty in psychosocial functioning, functioning in major um, areas of life. And so, um, you know, as long as you can show that, number one, you feel that your sex is not really what it is, and number two, you have distress in your life, for whatever reason, you're eligible for a gender dysphoria diagnosis. Now, I'm exaggerating maybe a little bit. A more scrupulous clinician might might demand something a little bit uh, higher threshold. But by and large, that's how it works. Um, and the you know the World Health Organization's ICD nine uh, ICD eleven is even more permissive. Um, it doesn't even require a showing of distress um, or difficulty functioning in, in society. Um, it just requires gender incongruence, meaning if you feel like uh, or like you're a male, even though you're biologically female, you have you can get the diagnosis of gender incongruence and qualify for all of these mental health uh, sorry all these medical interventions. Well, if you're a masculine woman. Or- or an effeminate man. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So, um, so sorry, I lost track of your of your question, but um, but, but that's that's kind of where we are right now. Now, you okay? Yeah, I remember. So you asked about um, alternatives to the APA to the American Psychiatric Association, which publishes the DSM. You know, there are a number of organizations that have sprouted out in recent years, Genspect, Jetta, that uh, are really kind of dedicated to providing an alternative to these captured mental health uh, psychological organizations. Organizations, um, they're not putting out diagnostic codes. 
partly because they don't think that we should be pathologizing gender nonconformity, and partly because you know they recognized correctly, soberly, that um, when kids say I'm trans, when t- especially teenagers say I'm trans, you know that's probably a good indication that there's something going on in their lives that needs to be explored. Right. Maybe they have ongoing trauma. Maybe they have autism, and this is a, a way for them to cope with that. Well, these comorbidities. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So to some extent, I don't want to see an alternative diagnostic coding for gender-related issues because that you know, concedes that, um, that there's something unique and special about somebody who, f- who, who rejects their sex. I think we just need to go back to basic principles here, and, and the mental health profession needs to uh, you know, start treating teenagers in particular who say, I'm not really my sex. They need to be applying the normal tools of therapy, right. uh, trying to understand the patient in the context of that person's broader life circumstances, life history, before, you know, you don't affirm anything, right? Um, as, as they would say to you, it's not my job to either affirm or deny that you are the opposite <laughs> sex. Let's put that aside and talk about what else is going on in your life. And I think the unstated expectation there is it's not good for somebody to, to reject a, a, a fundamental as, a, and real aspect of who they are. That's not a good thing. Um, it could be that as an adult, that person will have such severe psychological distress due to being in, in the body that they are, that they might find some relief in modifying their bodies with hormones and surgeries. Fine. That doesn't mean they've transformed into the other sex. <laughs> right. Right. Um, but, but I think starting from the premise of you are male, you are female, you're a boy, you're a girl, there's nothing you can do to change that um, is absolutely essential here. So ROGD is more a description of a phenomenon, not, and then working backwards, trying to find out the ultimate root of ROGD is the job of a good therapist, a good clinician, exactly right. exactly. as opposed to someone yep. saying like, oh, you have a, you have a medicalized situation. This is just a therapy is the ideal path, not uh, diagnosis. Exactly, exactly right. And so, you know, it, it's important for us to to kind of play their word games or kind of argue on the terrain that they have chosen. By they, I mean, you know, kind of activist clinicians, people like Turbin, right? It's important for us to engage on their level at some point and to kind of do battle with the ideas and, and research that they've put out, the, the really bad quality research that they've put out there. But we also have to just keep in mind that we're all, we've already strayed very far from basic reality and from tried and true principles of therapeutic practice. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, so that's where, that's where we are right now. Um, I'll, I'll repeat something that I said at the beginning, which is that ROGD is a pathway to the development of, uh, let's call it the rejection of one's sex. Yeah. And so it's, it's crucially important for any good therapist to want to understand why their patients are believing, feeling, acting in certain ways. Um, and that, that exploration of the why cannot take place under an affirming approach because the affirming approach says never explore the reasons why. <laughs> if a person says they're trans, they know who they are. Affirm, agree. It's anti-therapy posing as therapy. So what we want is for therapists to go back to therapy. Yeah. 
I think that's that's well said. Where can the people follow your work? Um, well, uh, two sources. One uh, is my uh, Manhattan Institute um, profile. They, you know, all my stuff is published there. Uh, the other is on X. I put everything that I write do on X. Um, specifically, this exchange that we've had on ROGD. Um, if you just Google my name and ROGD Archives of Sexual Behavior, you know it'll come up right away. I do urge listeners um, who are interested in this topic to read. Um, um, Lisa Littman's original paper, which is quite long, but I think very important. Uh, Turbin and his uh, uh, co-author's paper from last summer, um, it's called Age of Realization and Disclosure of Gender Identity Among Transgender Adults in the Journal of Adolescent Health, and then our letter to the editor that came out a few weeks ago, and then after that, also our follow-up uh, Substack post in Reality's Last Stand, where, where we respond to critics. I think if you, know, if you do that, you'll get quite an education on the debate over ROGD. Well, thank you so much. Leora Sapir. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Well, that's going to do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for being with us for this first part of our series on gender dysphoria and transgenderism. Make sure to catch the conversations both on Thursday and Friday morning as we continue to dive into this topic. If you have not had the chance, make sure that you check out our evening show. It's right here in the same podcast feed where every weekday around 5 p.m. we bring you the top news of the day. Also, take a minute to subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you like to listen to podcasts and help us reach more listeners by taking a minute to leave a five-star rating and review. Have a great rest of your day. We'll see you right back here around 5 p.m. for our top news edition. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.